The following contains strong language and adult themes and is intended for a mature audience. With a savage battle cry, the knight in silver armor plunges into the swirling snow. As he rushes from the darkness of the cave into the blizzard, he is nearly lost to sight in the vortex of white and wind. His weirdly flowing armor becomes one with the storm. His sword, clasped in both his mailed hands, raised to deliver a slashing strike from behind his right shoulder, is nearly invisible. Only his face, bared beneath his lifted visor, shows clearly through the wild weather. His dark eyes blaze with fury and fear. His mouth gapes wide on a ragged and murderous cry. He rushes toward the beast. The white beast is part of the weather, too. Lost in the weather, too. A hulking, hungry presence as it moves to reclaim its den. The knight can see the creature clearly through the tempest only because its eyes, its ravenous eyes, glow an unnatural red and shine out of the depths of the maelstrom. The knight can hear the thing as well. Even over his own hoarse shout, even through the hoarse and steady roar of the wind, he can hear the yeti growling low. That growl, it's not a fierce sound. No, it's a growl of satisfaction. The beast can smell the night. He can see him with his red eyes, see him charging. He's growling with anticipation of a fresh kill, a fresh feast, a new pile of bones to add to the others, already scattered in the shadows of the cave. As the knight draws back his sword for the attack, the yeti flexes his massive paws so that the claws switch blade out of them with a whispered snap. The claws are curved and sharp and daggery, and like the knight's armor, nearly invisible in the snow. Another split second of swirling white confusion, of shouting and growling and the roaring wind. Then the two opponents clash, the knight's sword swinging, the beast's claws slashing. The whirling storm turns red. Another Kingdom, the final season, written by me, Andrew Claven, performed by Michael Knowles. Episode 1, The Graveyard of Memory. Then the two opponents clash, the knight's sword swinging, the beast's claws slashing, the whirling storm turns red. Just there, on what I hoped was a dramatic note, I paused and lifted my eyes to the actors. There were twelve of them seated around the long table, each with a script lying open before him or her. Most of them weren't looking at their scripts, though. Most of them had their eyes lifted toward me, their gazes trained on, locked on, me. Such yearning, eager gazes. One might even say desperate gazes if one wanted to revel in one's own power over these people, and oh, I so did. I wanted to swim naked in the dark pools of their sycophancy. I could tell just by looking at their faces that they were awed by the genius of my writing. 
At least, I could tell, they were pretending to be awed by the genius of my writing. And really, this was Hollywood, so what was the difference? In this town, to be admired and to be in a position where people had to pretend to admire you were pretty much the same thing. In fact, the latter might have been a little tastier than the former when you came right down to it. Most of these beauties, these artists, these thespians, from the sinewy old hack who was up for the role of the evil wizard to the dumpy yet sensual babe who looked right for the smart-mouthed waitress part, hadn't been signed yet. Indeed, most of them had agreed to participate in this table read in the hope of winning the favor of the writer-producer, namely, me. So here we all were, in the first dark of a late spring evening, in one of the conference rooms at my agent's offices, with massive windows on the twinkly-colored lights of Beverly Hills, seated around a table shaped like a deformed kidney and delivering the first-ever dramatic reading of my screenplay, Another Kingdom. The writer-producer, did I mention that was me, was seated at what would have been the head of any ordinary non-deformed table. It was my job to read the descriptions of the action out loud. The actor hopefuls were there to deliver the dialogue of whatever character they'd been assigned. That way, I'd be able to hear what I'd written, be better able to judge whether the lines would work outside my imagination. My agent, Ted Wexler, and my co-producer, Mel Hersheim, and the director, Andy Brown, all seated against the wall to my left, would also listen and give me rewrite notes. It was an early stage in the process of making the film. But for the actors, this was do or die. They were here to show their stuff, to impress me. And Ted and Mel and Andy too, but mostly me. So I would hire them, cast them in the parts they were reading. So again, Who cared what they thought of my writing as long as they had to pretend to love it? They were only actors, after all. By nature, they were slaves to their ambitions, addicted to their need for the applause of strangers. For a part in a big-time production like this, any one of them would have chopped up his grandmother and sold me her body parts for food if he thought it would increase his chances of getting a nod. So they were all chained to my approval like ragged captives dragged behind the chariots of a homecoming king. What choice did they have what to think of me? They could either call me a genius or toddle off in their jalopies to the next cattle call. Whichever. It certainly made no difference to me what they really thought. With one exception. The girl at the end of the table, last seat on the right side. Jessica. Jennifer. Juniper. Something like that. I did care what she was thinking. Even as I was reading, that's all I was really wondering about. See, Jennifer believed she was here to audition for the central role of Lady Catherine. But she was not here for that. Not at all. Ted and I were desperately seeking a major movie star for that part. Jessica was here because her face was the face of an angel from some pornographic heaven. Slender, smooth and doe-eyed, framed by straight cascades of glistening golden hair. Her body, hidden now under a long baggy sweatshirt, had, as I knew from our original meeting... A shape of impossible allure, tight and sleek at waist and leg, but blossoming at breast and hip with breathless generosity. My point is, Juniper or Julia or whatever her name was, was here because I wanted to have sex with her. It was my sincere belief that she would sleep with me in hopes of landing the Lady Catherine part. In return, I would find her some small part with a line or two, maybe as a diner in the restaurant scene at the beginning. So it would be a big break for both of us. 
So yes, I cared what Joanna or whatever was thinking. So when I looked up from reading the Blizzard set piece, the exciting storm fight between our hero and the abominable snowman, I did a quick survey of the eager, not to say desperate faces gazing my way. I pretended to gauge their opinions of my work, as if I gave a damn, but really it was just my way of stealing an ever-so-casual glance at Josephine, or Juliet, or whoever she was, so I could get a sense of what was passing through her shapely mind. For a second, our eyes met, hers and mine. And even from all the way down the long table, I saw her yield, the black pools of her pupils softening and expanding to allow my hard glance to penetrate her consciousness to the core. The edges of her red, rich, full, red, rich, red mouth trembled upward like the petals of a flower in a breeze. I looked down at my script again. For a moment, we can see nothing of the battle. We can only hear the sting of the sword as it meets the first vicious swipe of the monster's claws. That's what was on the page anyway, so I guess that's what I read. But I wasn't listening to myself anymore. I was listening instead to my own quiet, contented psalm of triumph. Oh, Jillian, or Jennifer, whoever you are, I am going to have you. And I did have her, whoever she was. That very night, in the vast bed, in the vast bedroom, of my vast new apartment high in the Westwood sky above Wilshire Boulevard. And for my own sake, for the sake of my own dignity and sanity, I do want to record those last few moments with her before everything in my fantastic new life began to unravel. Because she was truly beautiful. Jessica, or Jennifer, or Joanna, or whatever. Naked, she was a sweet hymn to material creation. The vital blush of her skin, the flowing liquid shape of her, from her cuddly shoulders to the soles of her suckable little toes. The silk of her hair between my fingers, and the honeyed cream of her breast against my palm. And every time I went into her, and every time my midriff slapped against the infinitely yielding curve of her perfect bottom, and every time her head reared back toward me till my lips could press into her reddening cheek, and every time she let out her own unique signature cry of animal pleasure, or the pretense, at least, of animal pleasure, and this was Hollywood, so what was the difference? Every time I asked myself, what greater bliss on earth is there than the flesh of a woman? Really, what greater bliss than flesh on flesh, my flesh into her flesh, dream flesh becoming girl flesh, girl flesh becoming pleasure, pleasure becoming bliss, and what bliss greater? It was, I mean to say, not for nothing that I had become the low and scurvy little dirtbag I had recently become. I had done it for this, this bliss, this pleasure that was everything. I read somewhere you're supposed to feel sadness after an orgasm. Tristesse, the French call it. But what do the French know? I felt terrific. The girl rolled over onto her back when I released her, lounged there beneath me with a sly smile, her blue eyes misty, her cheeks still flushed nearly scarlet. She was clearly thinking, I have the part of Lady Catherine for sure. 
And I was thinking, wow, look at that. What a wonder she is, and I just had her. Me, Austin Lively. She was the seventh in just over a month and a half. The seventh spectacular beauty I had brought to this bed in the last six weeks alone. And I was thinking, wow, good for me. I mean, really, screw the French and their tristesse. I felt absolutely wonderful. I lowered myself down on top of her and lavished kisses on her breasts and her neck and her cheek and her lips until she must have thought I loved her, or at least knew her name. But it wasn't her I loved. It was life. This life. This new life of mine as a guy with money and power and a movie getting made. A guy who was therefore able to bring girls like this to his bed. I made my gentle excuses and left her lolling in the sheets as I padded naked into the bathroom. The vast bathroom with its rose marble walls. I washed at the sink. Brushed my teeth. Stood another second or so grinning at my own reflection. Who was this happy man, I wondered? This Austin whom I barely knew. How long ago was it? Only six months? That he was a nobody on the road to nowhere, a hobo shadow roving into the vanishing dark. I had come to this town, oh, years ago now, right out of film school, aspiring to become a movie maker. Well, I had failed at that. I had talked my famous brother into landing me a job at a production company as a reader of other writers' works. That had driven me half insane. Then, after my kid sister Riley went all the way insane, after she disappeared and hid herself away in the funhouse at a Walnut Creek amusement park, long story, after that, I had headed north to find her and bring her home. And when I had found her, and when I'd returned with her to L.A., even my crappy hanger-on reader job was gone. I was out of work completely in a town where only work matters. A non-person in a city that runs on personality. It felt as if the last shred of my identity had been torn from the obscure figure that had once been me, like clothes ripped off an invisible man. I was nobody then. When I was at home, the place was empty. I was all washed up in the city of angels. That was six and a half months ago. Six and a half months, and one phone call. One phone call from Solomon Vine. And that, my friends, had made all the difference. I winked at my reflection. I tousled my own hair in affectionate congratulations. I turned to glance at the small bathroom window that looked out toward the Hollywood Hills. Ah! I staggered back across the tiled floor, my hands thrown up in the air. Oh, my God! Suddenly, a hand seized me by the elbow. I spun around. But it was only Juniper, small and naked and afraid, grabbing hold of me. Jennifer! Jessica! What? For God's sake, Austin, what's the matter? The window! Look at the window, Jessica! Look! She looked. She looked harder. She narrowed her eyes. What? I don't see anything! What is it? There's nothing there! Nothing. I looked too, stared at, gawped at the window pane. I took a slow step toward it, and then another, the floor tiles cold against my bare feet. I leaned tremulous closer to the glass, half expecting the horror to jump scare out of the darkness at me. But no. The window was at the height of my face, 
My flabbergasted image was reflected on it, transparent. Through my own features, I saw the night city stretched out into the distance, a starless sapphire sky. White lights and red lights and green lights strewn across a rolling sable plain, like jewels scattered from a genie's hand. The blurry streaks of cars on the freeways, the spotlit Hollywood sign far away, and the lighted spear of the cell tower behind it. The anonymous jags of the Santa Monica Mountains, finally, like a rising, falling stain on the horizon. And, as Juliet said, nothing else. That was all. Her voice came softly from behind me. What? What was it? What did you see? I shook my head quickly. Nothing. Nothing. A trick of the light. I thought someone was standing there. It must have just been my reflection. After all, what else could I have told her? The truth? Forget it. She would have thought I was crazy. She would have run from the apartment. She would have called the police. But I was not crazy. I had seen it. It had been there. A thing that could not exist, standing in the night. Standing on the ledge where nothing could be standing. An enormous rodent with the face of a woman. We'll return to another kingdom in just a minute, but first, if you're fighting yetis and dragons and assassins, you're going to want two things, a sword and life insurance. If the idea of looking for life insurance intimidates you, try PolicyGenius.com. PolicyGenius is the easy way to shop for life insurance online. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. Once you apply, the PolicyGenius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. And PolicyGenius doesn't just make life insurance easy. They can also help you find the right home insurance, auto insurance, and disability insurance. This October... Take the scariness out of buying life insurance with Policy Genius. Go to policygenius.com. That's policygenius.com. Get quotes and apply in minutes. You can do the whole thing on your phone right now at policygenius.com. Policy Genius is the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. And now, back to another kingdom. I couldn't get to sleep after that, not for anything. I lay on my back awake, staring at the ceiling mostly, but also, from time to time, stealing wary glances at the bathroom doorway. Jessica was with me, softly snoring in my arms. I didn't send her home as I usually did with such one-offs. I needed her there, someone to cling to. I was afraid to be alone in my own apartment. That thing, that thing I had seen. It absolutely terrified me. And you may say, well, yeah, Austin, it was a gigantic rat with an eerily human female face grinning in at you through a window on the 13th floor. That is pretty spooky. But it wasn't that. It wasn't just that. There was something more, something even scarier. I recognized it. Whatever it was, I knew it. I had seen it somewhere before. But where? How could I ever have seen such a thing? And if I had, how on earth could I have possibly forgotten it? The sleeping girl murmured against my chest. I looked again across the top of her golden head at the bathroom door. 
I racked my brains, trying to remember why that creature seemed so familiar. Was it an image from a movie? A dream? An idea I'd had for a story? After all, it wasn't possible it was real, was it? Was it? I searched my memory. I found myself thinking back, six and a half months back, to when I was on the road north, hunting for my sister Riley. She had been hiding out. Her crazy videos had pissed off some even crazier thugs. Thugs and the police both were after her. And they came after me too as I tried to find her. It had been a weird dreamlike journey even at the time, but now... Now I could only remember shreds and snatches of it. The details were gone. Just gone. Why was that? Hours went by in meditations like these. Sleepless hours. I don't know how many. But finally, I couldn't stand it anymore. Gently, I worked my arm out from beneath the girl's shoulders. She gave a low complaint and rolled onto her side, still asleep. I sat up, gazing through the shadows at the bathroom door. I slipped out of bed. I had to go look at that window again. I had to see for myself that the creature had not returned, that it wasn't sitting out there, peering in at me. I didn't want to look, but I had to. I couldn't stop myself. Naked, I moved across the room. The bathroom door was half open. I held my breath. I pushed the door in the rest of the way. I peered into the darkness. Darkness lit to gray by the city lights outside. I glanced back over my shoulder to make sure the girl was still sleeping. Then I stepped across the threshold. And I fell. Dropped. Plummeted through nothing. The floor had vanished. I was falling down into darkness. I cried out, stupefied. I flailed at invisible emptiness. I screamed and twisted. I fell down and down. The gray glow of the bathroom spiraled away into the distance above me. It grew small, a point of light. Then it was swallowed by the darkness, and the darkness turned black. I could not stop screaming, flailing, falling. My gut went hollow as I realized. I dropped too far, too long to land safely. When I hit bottom, I was going to splatter and die. Then, I did hit bottom, but I didn't die. I dropped onto my back hard, like a cinder block hurled from a height. My scream turned to dust as the breath was knocked out of me. I lay coughing and gagging with terror, gasping for breath. I felt dry, rotten leaves under me and cold, damp earth. I rolled over on them, groaning. I pushed up with one hand. I reached out into the darkness. I touched something. Stone. I grabbed the top of it. Hacking, fighting for breath, I pulled myself slowly to my feet. My whole body was trembling violently. I still couldn't fully grasp what had happened to me. I was too dazed and jarred to be as frightened as I should have been. Then I looked around me. And I was frightened. Plenty frightened. I was in a graveyard in a forest. Slanting stones and monuments dotted a clearing ringed with shadowy pines. Mist twirled among the graves. An eerie light that seemed to come from nowhere and everywhere at once gave a living aspect to the staring statues that marked some of the burial sites. I looked down at myself. I wasn't naked anymore. 
I was dressed in a strange peasant outfit, breeches, and a loose shirt made of some rough cloth like burlap. Still shaking, still dazed, I massaged my aching head. What the hell? What was happening to me? This had to be a nightmare, right? I mean, I'd just dropped through the bathroom floor onto the set of a horror movie. What else but a nightmare could it be? But I couldn't wake myself up. I pounded the heel of my palm against my brow, but I was still here. Bruised, shaking, surrounded by gravestones in the dead of night. Still here. My breath came out of me in an unsteady stream as I turned my head to scan the scene. Beyond the field of graves was a deepening cluster of trees, bent, wintry, naked in the uncanny light. I kept turning. I saw more statues, statues everywhere. A faceless mourner in a heavy cloak of stone. A child staring sightless into the mist. An angel pointing toward the earth. I paused on that last one, squinting to see it better. Wait, I thought. Shouldn't angels point toward heaven? And what was with that grin on its face? That was not an angelic expression at all. My heart turned black inside me. This was a bad place. An evil place. And not a nightmare. Real. I turned one more arc and saw the mansion through the trees. It should have been a church, I thought. This was a churchyard. There should have been a church nearby. But no. It was a large house, visible through the tangled branches of the thickening forest. And I knew it. I recognized it. A gibbering, nearly hysterical voice spoke in my head. No, no, I escaped from there. I'm free from there. I got out. I got out. (laughs) Then I saw him. Deep in the trees, a silhouette mingled with the silhouettes of the branches, almost invisible among them. A small figure in a starry cape of liquid night. Not a statue. A man. Laughing at me. Who's there? Who are you? You know, Austin. You know who I am. Had he spoken aloud? Or was I hearing the voice inside my head? I'm done with you! I escaped this place! But though the words came out of my mouth, I didn't understand them. I didn't understand what I was saying. The shadow within the shadows smiled. His eyes burned red. In the eerie glow, I caught a glimpse of his face, as wrinkled as a raisin, as wicked as a secret sin, a tuft of hair on his forehead, a tuft on his chin. You didn't escape, Austin. I let you go. Don't you remember? I offered you your freedom. I told you you'd never have to return. I told you you wouldn't even remember this place existed. I offered to give you back your life. And more than your life. A better life. 
the life you always wanted. Have I not kept my promises? I shrank from him. I held up my hands. I couldn't get his voice out of my head. No! No! I didn't agree to that! I didn't agree to that! I didn't! I... And then, another voice. Not his voice. My own. Tolling in my mind like a hammer striking a great bell. I didn't say no. The mist swirled with the laughter and glowed red so that the gravestones and the monuments and the grinning not-an-angel pointing toward the earth all glowed red as well. I clutched my head in my two hands. Stop it! Stop! And the voice in my head. Was it his voice now or still mine? I wasn't sure. But it spoke again with that same tolling clarity. You You didn't didn't say say no. no. And And now now you're mine. mine. You belong to me. Furious, I dropped my hands, ready to confront him face to face. But he was gone. There was nothing in the woods but the shadows of the trees, their dead branches stirring in the mist, the mist swirling around the graves and monuments. Then, a noise. Something was moving in the dark. The earth at the base of the gravestones was trembling, rumbling, The dead leaves were rattling. The wind was whispering in the high branches. And figures, figures were rising out of the dirt into the mist. I strained to see them, but the mist thickened, and I could make out only vague shapes clawing their way free of the graves on every side of me. I heard something large slither toward me over the leaves. That was off to my left. Off to my right, I heard something skittering, tiny footsteps rapidly approaching over the forest floor. Then another sound to the right of that, the thud and drag of a limp, a hungry grunt. All of the noises getting louder every second, all of them coming closer, converging on me. In growing panic, I turned this way and that, my eyes passing over the graves, over the trees, over the mist. My heart seemed to seize in my chest as I picked out the shapes of the statues again. The angel, the child, the cowled mourner. And then another shape. But this one not of stone. Not human either. A huge, sinuous, serpentine shape uncoiling slowly from the ground, rising like a viper ready to strike. I heard the sounds of beasts approaching from every side of me. I knew, or sensed, what they would do if they reached me. I could feel the heat of their yearning hunger for the glowing source of life within me. I ran. Ah! I raced around the graves, high-stepping like on an obstacle course. The grinning angel that was not an angel turned its marble head to follow me, still pointing down. I cried out again, throwing my hands up, afraid the angel would grab me, hold me so the slithering beasts could run me down and swarm over me. But the angel only watched me go, and I stumbled on, leaping a smaller headstone as it became suddenly visible at my feet, crashing into the tree line, breaking through the clawing, scratching branches as I plunged into the forest. I ran and ran some more. The night grew thicker as the woods closed in. 
I could hear nothing but the sound of my heavy breathing. And then I did hear something. A throaty grunt. A thudding step. Right behind me. A thing. A creature. A soul leech. Closing on me. Drooling with eagerness. I looked over my shoulder. That was a mistake. I saw it. The looming shadow of it. A hellish hulk. Horned and scaly. Its hands outreaching. Webbed and clawed. Teeth. Fangs. Dripping. A humped root smacked into my right ankle. I grunted in pain and went down, rolling over the spiky earth. I began to scramble to my feet, and the beast grabbed me. I felt its claws begin to sink into the flesh of my left leg, just above my ankle. Like some computer screen in a lightning storm, my mind flickered green-white with an image of the creature so awful it scoured my mind of everything but fear. A surge of pure terror gave me strength and speed. I leapt to my feet before the soul leech could sink its claws into me. I felt the sharp tips of those claws scrape over my skin as I yanked my leg out of its grasp. A split second later and I was rocketing deeper into the forest bursting through branches and brush, arms pumping, teeth gritted, and this time I knew better than to look back. A movement in the corner of my vision caught my attention. I glanced to the side. Beyond the trees, I saw a rectangle of smoky light, a doorway in the atmosphere. A way out? Maybe. Dimly, through the hanging branches and curling vines, I saw the figure of a woman standing by the light, visible in the outglow. I thought I saw her beckon me. There was no time to consider. I turned and raced toward her, dodging around the trunks of trees, trees that were becoming sparser as the woods gave way to clearing. I heard another hungry grunt behind me, slobbering gibbers all around me, hisses, hissing cries. But I didn't look. I just ran. And now, through the gloom, I caught a clearer glimpse of the light in front of me. What I saw made absolutely no sense. But then what did make sense in this place? I saw a doorway in the dark. A passage into a smoke-filled room. How nuts was this? It was some room out of an old movie. A little cubbyhole somewhere with four burly men sitting at a table, playing cards, smoking cigars. The woman by the door seemed to be drawing me toward them. I caught a clearer glimpse of her, too. A gorgeous rose-and-ivory valentine of a face, framed by a tumble of raven hair. A name tried to rise into my consciousness, but couldn't quite. And yet I knew her. Trusted her. And that room, that card game. There was hope in there. Not safety, but hope. Something roared not yards away. The wild, hungry snickering all around me grew louder. I felt something slither near my feet. With a roar, I put on a final jolt of speed. I reached the lighted doorway, smelled the cigar smoke. I dashed across the threshold and sat up in bed with a muffled shout, bringing Jennifer or Jessica or Julia bolt upright beside me. What? What? What is it? I sat there, panting hoarsely, staring around me. I gave another groan and held my head. Oh, God. Oh, God. It's nothing. Nothing. A nightmare. I I had a nightmare. I'm fine. 
She touched my arm in an instinctive gesture of womanly care. Take it easy. Take it easy. I'm fine. Just a nightmare. I'm fine. I reached out for the lamp at my bedside, switched it on. In superstitious fear, I looked down over my own body, naked to the cover line. Naked, I thought. No burlap shirt and pants. Of course not. It had been a dream. A nightmare. The images were already dispersing, disappearing from my memory as the images from dreams will do. I ran one hand down over one arm, then the other down the other. No scratches from the trees. No dirt from where I'd fallen. Of course not. A nightmare. With a sigh of relief, I glanced over at the girl. Eyeing me warily, she removed her hand from my arm. She'd only come here to get the part, after all. Sex for a shot at fame was one thing, but actual womanly care for a stranger in distress, that was way too much to ask. I steadied my breathing. Just so there'd be no doubt in my mind, I pushed the blankets down further to examine the naked rest of me. No leaves or dirt on my legs. My feet clean. Of course. Of course. <sighs> the dream was almost entirely gone now. Only scattered images remained, and those were swiftly fading. What's that? She reached down and gingerly touched my calf. I turned my leg until I could see what she saw. It looks like something clawed you. I stared. She was right. There were thin scratches on the flesh of my lower calf. They didn't hurt or anything. They weren't deep. They were already scabbed over. But when I tried to think where they had come from, I couldn't. How'd you get those? Slowly, I shook my head. I don't know. I can't remember. Another Kingdom, the final season. Written by me, Andrew Claven. Performed by Michael Knowles. Episode 1, The Graveyard of Memory, was directed by Jonathan Hay, produced by Austin Stevens, executive producer Jeremy Boring, supervising producer Mathis Glover, visuals by Anthony Gonzalez-Clark and P.K. Olson, audio, music, and sound design by Kyle Perrin, audio is mixed by Mike Cormina, and the main theme is composed by Adrian Seeley. Another Kingdom, copyright, amalgamated metaphor, Daily Wire production, copyright, Daily Wire, 2019. If you have questions about the show, and I'm sure you do, then go over to dailywire.com and become an all-access member. You'll be able to take part in our brand new discussions feature. Michael and I will be on this Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, to answer all your questions about Another Kingdom, whether it's about a particular episode, how we make the show, or the worlds within another kingdom. But remember, only all Access members can join discussions, as well as getting new episodes three days before the rest of the world. Don't miss out. Go join at dailywire.com. Thanks for listening to Another Kingdom.